Український народ надзвичайно сміливий та хоробрий. Ми знаємо, що свобода безцінна, і вміємо її захищати. Уміємо захищати життя. І маємо пам'ятати, що кожен день повинен давати результат у захисті України. With Ukraine's counteroffensive moving slower than anticipated, Kyiv scores a small victory by liberating some strategic territory in Donetsk Oblast. But amid the Ukrainian gains in the south, Russia is launching an offensive of its own in Kharkiv Oblast in the northeast. And a U.S. intelligence report has assessed that Ukraine's counteroffensive will fail to achieve its key objective of severing Russia's land bridge to Crimea this year. So where does the fighting stand 18 months after Russia launched its war of aggression? Well, we've got just the guests to break it all down, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And back by popular demand and joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, a newly minted senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a principal research scientist at DNA Corporation, and a senior editor at War in the Rocks. Michael's also the host of the must-listen new Russian contingency podcast on War on the Rocks. Welcome back to the vertical, Michael, and congratulations on the new gig. Wow, oh, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Thanks, thanks for coming. So it's time to do our periodic check-in on the situation on the ground. Um, Ukraine this week drove deeper into the Mokriyali River Valley in the south, liberating the tiny village of Urozhanya. This means that Ukraine now holds positions on both banks of the Mokriyali River, which positions its forces to make more advances. But in the northeast, Russia is putting pressure on the town of Kupiansk in the, in the Kharkov region. The town was captured by Russian forces early in the war and liberated by Ukraine in September. Michael, am I missing anything here? How do you see the situation on the ground and what should we be watching for going forward? And how concerning is this Russian offensive in the Northeast? There's a lot to unpack here. Okay. So I'm not overly concerned about the Russian offensive in the Northeast. It seemed like a fairly localized counterattack where the Russian military was trying to take advantage of the fact that Ukrainian forces were largely focused on three axes and couldn't be strong everywhere. Uh, they'd made some progress a few weeks ago, but then Ukrainian military counterattacked and overall stabilized the situation. So I think in general, uh, Russian progress in the north and this much smaller counteroffensive has been fairly anemic. I wouldn't be overly concerned about that situation. And I think the more significant and more important questions all pertain to the ongoing Ukrainian offensive and what's happening between these three axes of uh, Arikhev down towards the Takmak in Mediatopol, the push from Yurika Navasilka towards Berdyansk that you were sort of referencing in your mm -hmm. discussion of what's happening at, at Urzhaina, and the supporting axis that's not really an offensive of its own, but more of a fixing action that's been taking place in the round Bakhmut. So, so my understanding right now is with the Ukraine's in the position to make do one of two things right now to move in the direction of Berdyansk or Mariupol. Is that that is that's what I'm looking at? And they're both about 50 kilometers from where the 
where the Ukrainian forces are now? Is that a correct reading of the situation? And if that's the case, this U.S. intel report that came out that I referenced in the intro, that says it's unlikely that Ukraine is going to reach Melitopol, does that also mean it's unlikely to reach Berdyansk or Mariupol? How should, how should we be looking at this, this situation here in the South? Yes, it means it's unlikely that the offensive is going to reach any, any of the three objectives. And the truth is that the axis that you're looking at is a secondary axis. And while Ukraine had uh, the option early on in the offensive in selecting which which path they were going to reinforce, the attack, which appeared to be the thrust of the main effort from Riche towards Miotopol, or this push down from the Ikan of Asilka, right? Uh-huh. Uh, over a month ago, they began to commit the second echelon forces from 10th Corps on the Rikif axis. And then more recently, they began committing the reserves, which are air mobile brigades, at Rikiv as well, fighting outside of Rabotna. So it becomes very clear then to the Russians that Vika Novosilka is largely a fixing action. The retreat from Gorzhina was very expected for a simple reason. Once Ukrainian forces captured Staromayorsk, which they've been fighting kind of titularly over for quite a few weeks, the Russian military would have to retreat from Gorzhina to avoid being slowly encircled, and they just reset the battle a bit further south. But the challenge is that um, they can retreat and give up this town, or at least retreat one town at a time, for a number of reasons. First, the main defensive line on that axis actually changes in the south of uh, Staromolnikka, which is even further south. The large... Which is because a lot of people think this is the next Ukrainian target. Yeah, well, naturally, but. Um, but the reality is that most of the forces available to reinforce and advance are all on what's clearly the main effort. And that's not to say that's what's happening at Vika Novosilka doesn't matter anymore, but it's not where this offensive looks like it's going to be decided. And pretty much all of it seems to be, um, now focused on a very narrow area which is the Ukrainian attempts to uh, seize uh, Robotna and the fight to push through between that town and Robotna and break through the first initial Russian defensive belt, which runs kind of, it makes a big dog leg through there. Point being, that's clearly the main effort. And the point of this effort is to try to get to Tokmak and if everything was to go well months ago, even further. And that would take him on the direction ultimately to Melitopol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's, so Melitopol is still the main objective. Um, and Ukraine doesn't have other options right now. I mean, how did, did you, do you see any contingencies here? Well, I think Melitopol would have been the ideal outcome. And, uh, now I'm not sure what the main objective is. It's probably still Mayotopol, but if you look at the fact that most of the fighting has taken place within around 10 kilometers from where it started, actually on pretty much all the axis of advance, 
and that much of it has been in the initial Russian line defenses. Part of the reason for that is that the Russian military chose to defend forward. They built out a pretty extensive defense in depth, and then they chose not to really use it. Uh, they saw that the initial Ukrainian breaching effort failed, and so they decided to uh, conduct a much more active defense. I think they're rather overconfident, and so they spent a lot of effort counterattacking Ukrainian forces. And rather than trying to trade territory or terrain for attrition, the Russian military has fed a, a substantial amount of their forces as well. So the way this has shook out is that much of the fight has taken place um, not far from where it began. Right. Our, our, our common friend Rob Lee in comments this week said the decisive factor in the counter-defensive has been the stronger-than-expected Russian defense. I'm um, paraphrasing him, of course, but that was the gist of what I remember him saying. I assume you would concur with that. Yeah, I think a lot hinged on how well-prepared the Russian defense would be and, and the Russian motivation, which is the extent to which they would actually hold those lines. Um, but also, remember, in the route to the offensive, I had explained to folks as best I could that we were really looking at two untested forces. Now, a relatively newly prepared Russian defense and more importantly, a set of new brigades that the Ukrainian military had put together with Western training, and nobody knew how they would perform, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you could be optimistic or you could be pessimistic, but the point is that the jury is no longer out. It's very clear how things uh, played out. And unfortunately, the new brigades didn't perform as expected. Most of the gains were made by the much more experienced units that didn't have Western equipment. Yeah. Uh, Fine. So there, there are almost the factors here besides just the extensively prepared Russian defense that, that are worth discussing. But in general, um, I think that now both sides have reserves in play. And this has largely been a slugfest between, the, between Russia and Ukrainian forces. It's been a, a principally an attritional fight. And it's going to come down to who has the more combat power remaining, who's got more reserves available, uh, and a lot of it will be based off staying power. With the staying. And is there any sense of who has more reserves remaining? Uh, that's tough to know. I will tell you, it's always easier to see territory exchanging hands and seeing a township control than it is to know the real state of either side's forces. Right. As you see in the press, they constantly debate what the real losses are on both sides, what the casualties are. So it tells you that this is very far from uh, uh, a science or something where you can have high confidence. Right, right. I think that I think that both uh, both sides are now strained in terms of the combat power they have available, and that we're probably going to see this offensive culminate in September. That's my best guess. Aha. Uh -huh. So we so we basically got less than a month to go. And uh, just to, I, I want to dive into this U.S. intelligence report in a bit. But before I do, I mean, you said when we spoke a couple of months back, you said we should not measure this by the matrix of what we expect, but why, but by what the Ukrainians expect. Is it fair to say the Ukrainians are not hitting their targets right now? 
that they believe they are not hitting their target? Yeah, I mean, I think they were very, I think Ukrainian leaders were very frank about it early on, saying that this is going a lot slower than, than expected. And um, I think they were pretty honest. It's clear that, look, no plans to rise first contact with the enemy, usually. Uh, they adjusted. Uh, the strategy they pursued was one that sort of plays to Ukrainian strengths. But it goes with its own trade-offs, which is that you're only going to make incremental gains that way. And to the extent that it may preserve combat power in the force, it also makes it difficult to uh, breach or to put the Russian military into a real dilemma, right? Because you're solely pressing them out one tree line and one town at a time. It's very hard to put the other military into, uh, into let's say, a sort of crisis because they're being rapidly outmaneuvered or outflanked. Right, because the way you're attacking is you're principally forced to steadily press them from one position to another. They have time to withdraw or to recover or to build additional defenses. The longer an offensive goes on and progress is slow, the more time the Russian military has had to regenerate minefields to put down additional defenses or what have you. And, and I often try to um, uh, convey this to folks that every strategy is trade-offs. There's no such thing as a cost-free or risk-free option in the war. Right, it's very hard to find. Right, to find an approach that won't have trade-offs, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, there's there's a lot that that tends to be tends to be contingent in these things. So, so judging from everything we know right now, and of course we 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 don't know the future here, but this looks like it. We are going to go into another winter with the basically the front line more or less frozen with little very little change on the map is that what you're expecting to see going forward well let's let's first wait to see how this offensive actually culminates and how it ends because a lot can change in a matter of a few weeks but if we were to hypothetically play this out i think some of it then depends on what russia chooses to do right do they choose to launch uh, they're all offensive prematurely. Um, do they choose to maintain current force levels or will they consider conducting another mobilization? I don't see the Russian military being able to restore offensive potential, any significant offensive potential, without another round of mobilization. I, I just don't think that they have the the force capacity available. Um, and then, yeah, I think we could see sustained fighting into the winter. Or uh, we could see the Russian military steadily pressured. Ukraine was going to have some other capabilities slowly come online in September, like GLSDB from the United States, right. maybe a few other things. And they'll, they'll start to pressure the Russian military greater in depth. Um, but yeah, it's fair to say that probably whatever the line looks like going into October is what it's going to look like heading through the winter. That's a bad guess. You know, that's not... That's not definitive, but that's the best guess. So I would, like I said, I would wait until, uh, my own view is I would wait until September's over. But I think that, I, yeah, I, I think we've not seen a substantially changed dynamic in this offensive over the past several weeks. And there has been a commitment to both Ukrainian second echelon forces and reserves, and reserves on the Russian side too. So now... You're kind of looking at um, what 
what maybe, or at least we can see in the distance, the culmination point for this operation one way or another. It's something I keep coming back to is those big gains Ukraine made last year were all in September, right? The gains in Kharkiv and the gains in Ersan were, were all in September. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know if that, that means anything, if we should maybe expect something in September. I don't know if there's any significance to that whatsoever. Would... Yeah, I I don't think that one, that what happened on Kharkiv is likely to repeat itself. And this offensive definitely demonstrated that. Uh, and two... What happened Kherson, actually early on in September and Kherson last year is that initial attack wasn't successful. And the commander got replaced, and it led to about a month of attritional fighting before Ukrainian forces pushed again and managed to achieve a breakthrough along the river in the northeastern part of, of that sector of Kherson. But the line sort of stabilized again and it pressed, it forced the Russian military ultimately to withdraw because of the geometry of the battlefield and more to put it more plainly, Russian forces were very disadvantaged in Kherson and they were on the wrong side of a river. Mm. Uh, you do not have that geography here, although it is fair to say that Ukraine could target much more extensively the various bridges and ground links to Crimea. I really started to see that more in the last couple of weeks. Uh, probably myself, I had questions as to why it, the Ukrainian targeting campaign took a while to uh, to use British storm shadows mm -hmm. to really come after Ru Russian bridges. It seemed early on they struck the Chungar Bridge once, and then there wasn't a lot of follow-up, and then it just wasn't clear what, what the focus of the targeting was. And Ukrainian military came back after those bridges more recently. But in general, it's important to understand that uh, each of these fights are different. The correlation of force is different. The geography of the battlefield is different. And the degree of sort of prepared defense and the quality of force involved is different. Right. And that's it. There isn't, they, e, e, each of them are their own separate fight, but it is useful to look back to Harkin Kherson for lessons, right? They do inform us. And uh, Kherson was both a cautionary tale that against a prepared defense without the advantages uh, offered by air superiority, the Ukrainian military would have a difficult time making progress. And also that an attritional approach could eventually succeed in pressing Russian forces out. But under those conditions and in the context of the fight that took place in Kherson. Right, right. Okay, I wanted to dive into this intelligence report that, that popped up, and I, of course, we I haven't seen the actual report. I've seen the Washington Post reporting on this report, but according to an assessment by the U.S. intelligence community, it's highly unlikely that Ukraine will reach its goal of splitting Russian forces and getting to to Militopol this year. Um, I, I know you have some thoughts on this report and on the reporting on this report, so what uh, so have at it. Well, I mean, here's the problem. We don't have the report. We only have Washington Post and whatever uh, officials anonymously gave to the Washington Post. And then however the Washington Post kind of wrote that down and and chose to convey it. And this is always a problem. Um, not to crit criticize the, the immense courage of uh, leaks by anonymous U.S. officials, but this is always the challenge you get of, uh, things that get lost in translation, right? So I think in in reading that article, 
what I think jumped out at me, and this has been one of the more consistent issues I've observed over the last couple of months on this offensive, is that there are a host of criticisms levied there, and some are fair, but some are pretty unfair. And the unfair ones, in my view, is that I think U.S. Uh, uh, well, I don't know the best way to put it is, but um, I think folks here in the U.S. in general tend to interpret as uh, timidity or uh, failure to mass forces on the Ukrainian side as uh, failure of Ukrainian strategy. What I think that they fail to appreciate in general is that we don't have a great understanding as to how the Ukrainian military actually fights, what their constraints are, and what their preferences are. And in, in my own experience, it became very clear that, look, the reality is the Ukrainian military uh, has challenges and struggles in employing military power on the offensive scale. The bottom line it, you know, that the way the United States thinks the Ukrainian military should be fighting is not a way that they typically fight. And the three months or so of training that they offer to these new Ukrainian brigades, uh, we're not going to get them there, we're going to dramatically change the Ukrainian way of war, to put it somewhat globally. And the truth is that the Ukrainian military is a very good military at what it does, but it's not uh, it's not great at coordinating offensive action at scale, right. and it's much better at small unit tactics and at decisively leveraging fires and artillery and fire superiority to enable these advances. And so I think you have sometimes an erroneous interpretation on the U.S. side that the way Ukrainian military is fighting is fighting because this is a function of choice rather than a function of constraints given the worst quality they have available, right? The types of prepared defense that they're facing where a mechanized assault without the right amount of enablers just wouldn't succeed. And they tried this in several phases of the offensive, right? And it wasn't particularly successful. It's not like for lack of trying. Um, and that they don't have a lot of the other uh, capabilities that the United States might expect to have to enable an operation to be conducted in that way. A fair criticism might be if one was to kind of look at the situation that Ukraine, you know, dispersed forces along three, three axes, three fronts. Right. And that there was a clear theory of success behind this approach, which was that he would force the Russian military to move units around and commit reserves elsewhere. And this would create a lot of pressure on them. But there was also the significant trade-off that would diffuse Ukrainian fires advantage and Ukrainian operations. And it could lead to Ukrainian military not being able to establish a decisive advantage on any front, right? Like every strategy comes with a trade-off. There's no free lunch. And and while I brush this, when this strategy didn't show itself to be particularly successful early on in the offensive, it doesn't seem like there were really any adjustments made. But the more significant issue I see is that a lot of the more experienced and better Ukrainian brigades are fighting around Bakhmut. A lot of the less experienced Ukrainian brigades are fighting around what supposedly is the main axis of advance towards the strategic objective. Why is that? I would uh, love to say I have the answer to that one, Brian. And <laughs> I do not. I really don't. Um, I pondered it myself. And I will tell you that if I was to, if I was to drop a roster in my mind 
of what I think are the best Ukrainian brigades, the most experienced ones, the better units, right? Think of it, this, this, I hate sporting analogies for war, right? But nonetheless, some analogies are helpful. Uh, and I also look at this roster and I also say, where are the best brigades that you would want leading your offensive operation, right? The ones that you expect to make a major breakthrough. And from my point of view, I don't see a lot of those brigades in the South fighting uh, towards Tukmak. And I don't have great answers for that. Sometimes it's uh, fair to say, I don't know. I'm not right. a training general staff, I don't know. Right. But I think that this aspect of it has, has been puzzling, not just for me, but for other analysts trying to figure out the distribution of, of the Ukrainian effort and the overall combat strength. Not necessarily in numbers of the brigades, but... As I, as you know, I said before, Excel spreadsheets don't fight, right? So right. it's not just about what's on the Excel spreadsheet. It's very much about what those units can do and what they demonstrate they can do on their real combat strength and combat effectiveness. So to me, they're, look, it's also fair to say that there are a lot of things we don't know now that we will know later. And I know this is an unsatisfactory answer to listeners, but we're often able to piece together what happened in an offensive operation some months after the fact right fear amount of uncertainty and you have very imperfect information and just don't have great answers to, to necessarily uh some of these questions when you're in the midst of the operation itself yeah one answer i would like down the road and i know you don't have an answer to it now is why all of this disproportionate attention to bakhmut which is totally out of proportion to its strategic significance but we've been down that <laughs> rabbit yeah. hole before um and i am still scratching my head about that one I'll just say I draw attention to that. Other folks have as well. We've also gotten yelled at for drawing attention to it. But I will tell you that the the longer uh, I've looked at it over the course of this year, the more I've started to wonder whether or not choices made at Bakhmut did not come with some pretty significant strategic trade-offs with respect to force management and the forces available for this offensive. And I don't just mean in the winter and the spring, I mean, now, over the course of this offensive, the distribution of the overall weight of effort uh, does lead me to wonder. Yeah. Another thing I'm wondering about is why are these intel reports being leaked now? We both know how Washington uh, works. This wasn't the case of a, a brave uh, whistleblower leaking to the Washington Post. This was clearly an authorized leak. Uh, and I'm wondering what's, you know, does this, does this, uh, show some frustration on the part of you the the administration with the ukrainians right now what is the strategic purpose behind this leak i know you don't have a a, a definitive answer to that I, i'm uh, it's something i'm wondering about at this time so yeah as i mentioned before the courage of anonymous leaks in washington dc um i i think just speaking off of having spent some time in this town my first instinct when i see something like that uh, it is usually to cover one's rear mm -hmm. and to say that, well, uh, we always knew it was going to be like this, or we didn't necessarily think it was going to work. And also to position the conversation for a potential blame game that might follow. As you know, things, uh, as, as I often say, victory, victory has uh, many fathers, but defeats an orphan. But that's not true. In, in actuality, if you have any political experience, defeat usually is pinned on someone. Speaking just from my own profession, I know well in Washington, D.C. that something's either a policy success or an intelligence failure, okay? 
And and I'm not to some extent I'm not surprised because it may be that the folks who leak this are similarly aware of this adage, right? And are positioning the conversation to ensure that however it emerges from this, it does not get portrayed as some sort of intelligence failure. So, but I'm just saying that I myself am very used to the fact that uh, either something is successful from a policy perspective or immediately analysts are then blamed for having not predicted it or not assessed something. Right. These, right. Are, these are the only two scenarios we have. And the big picture I take away from this is that it, what it says about how the U.S. views uh, how this is going right now. I'm looking at the clock. That's a good way to segue into our shortened second section. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at some of the external factors influencing the war, including the political situation in Russia in the aftermath of the Wagner Rebellion, Russia's sagging economy, and the complex politics of Western aid to Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power of Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on, uh, is military analyst Michael Hoffman, a newly minted senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a principal research scientist at CNA Corporation, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. I'd also like to remind you, subscribe to Power Political Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the website, formerly known as the Twitter, at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Гарантувати надійний мир, і я дякую кожному нашому воїну, усім, хто б'ється заради України, усім було. So no war takes place in a vacuum. Um, in the time remaining, I wanted to look at just a couple of the external factors influencing the situation on the battlefield now. Um, and the first of these, of course, is the aftermath of the Wagner Rebellion in Russia, which took place almost two months ago. At the time, many of us viewed this as a major watershed that damaged Putin politically and could potentially diminish Russia's ability to effectively wage war in Ukraine. Michael, how does this look now two months down the road? Well, I personally didn't think that it was going to significantly affect the Russian ability to sustain the war in Ukraine. It could have if the mutiny slash coup slash whatever you want to call it, mutiny plus, right? There are different ways to interpret what Prigozhin's Politicians were, and to what extent people were backing him, or or he thought people were backing him, but they ultimately didn't back him. However, you you imagine playing out, but it didn't. Ultimately, the the mutiny did not have a significant immediate impact. And the question was going to be: if the mutiny didn't have an impact, would the regime's reaction to it have an impact? Right, and here. I don't think we're really seeing much in the way of uh, purges or repression. No. I mean, it's still a, a question as to what's going to happen with Surovikin, but most of his work was actually to set up what became nicknamed the Surovikin line, which is what we were in part discussing right. uh, uh, earlier in our conversation. Um, and Gerasimov had largely taken over control for him back in January anyway. Uh, there were rumors of all sorts of folks being removed from from command, uh, a number of which weren't actually removed. And then in retrospect, I, I myself was one of those people who thought that the result of this 
knew the attempt was sort of that everybody loses, that Prigozhin loses, Wagner loses, and Putin loses the most in terms of how it shook out for him. And now I still kind of largely stick to that with the exception of it looks like Prigozhin and Wagner actually lost a lot less than I expected. Right. Right. But I think that's a fair, fair interpretation. Yeah. I'm, I'm not entirely sure why it played out that way. Uh, but this movie itself was kind of a watershed event and something like this hadn't been seen on Putin's rule. Like this kind of open uh, yeah. um, arm contestation of his power and authority even after he had issued a judgment. But to me, I think in, in fairness, it appeared as though the coup was almost like a Prigozhin's attempt to conduct an internal military coup of the military leadership, and he was shocked that Putin ruled against him, this theatrical, this dramatic act, and then he wasn't sure what to do. And and he didn't have the support, neither the public support, nor the overt military support that he needed to actually keep marching on Moscow and do something with that, right? Um, and so he got sort of stuck, and then ultimately they reached an agreement, and the fact that they reached an agreement I've honestly seen competing interpretations of it. Some people naturally say that made Putin look very weak and uh, they had to negotiate with Prigozhin. And other people, others have written that uh, the fact that Putin survived this coup and it lasted barely 24 hours and it wasn't well supported actually strengthened him. So I don't know. As, as always. Right, right. Well, I, I'll, I'll always remember your immortal text uh, as the thing broke up. Worst coup ever. I want my money back. <laughs> I was up the whole night. I don't know what I was saying. That was uh, just that afternoon. Yeah, as, as it was broken up. Yeah. Let's look like. Hey, I, I'm happy. I'm happy at least. Uh, uh, what I, as, as always, I reserved. I reserved judgment as this coup was in progress. Um, but yeah, it, it was very short lived. Yeah, no, it was, it was about as anticlimactic as as they come, although I'm not sure we've seen the full fallout from it yet, to be honest. Sure. The second external factor I wanted to briefly kind of touch on is the Russian economy, which was in the news this week. Uh, the Russian Central Bank jacked up interest rates by 350 base points to 12%. Inflation's over 7%. And the ruble's now worth about a penny, uh, sinking to 100 to the dollar, its lowest point in 17 months. Does this matter for the conduct of the war? Yes, it does. This is actually the most significant factor for the conduct of the war long term. If you accept my premise going going way back that this is a long war and it is going to be a longer war, and we're likely going to see this war now go through from 2023 into 2024 and potentially beyond, one of the most significant factors, all things being equal, is economy, economic sustainability, the state of Russian defense industrial capacity, the question of their ability to sustain budget deficits given the degree of uh, outside spending on defense, right? The mobilization of the economy, depressed revenues to some extent from energy exports, um, and what looked like a host of, let's say, imbalances that the economy is dealing with and how much is hidden beneath the surface of, of what appears to be relative calm, calm which is to, to put another way what financial uh or other economic crises will russia yet have to deal with this year and next year that we have not yet foreseen but will be factors and they'll certainly be factors that shape russian political leadership's decision making 
And this is something that as a military analyst, I'm always keenly aware of and trying to track with one eye, even though obviously I'm not an economist, because these right. are very significant factors. Whenever you're talking about war and folks ask, well, who does, you know, who does attrition favor? Who does the medium to long-term favor? And the question is always, well, on what timeline? Three months, right. three years, 10 years? Um, to me, uh, the, on the one hand, the, the Russian economy has shown that, yes, they can probably sustain this war in the near to medium term, but not without crises, right? So there's this kind of status quo bias and the assumption that if they're able to sustain the situation now, that's kind of going to look like this for the next year or two, Brian. Mm-hmm. But when you see things like the precipitous drop in the value approval, the sort of introduction of soft capital controls, which might be followed by fairly hard uh, capital controls and what have you, it tells you that this thing is not going to go on without crises, right? And so uh, it's we just have to be conscious of the fact that there are a host of imbalances that the Russian system is probably managing behind the scenes and fires they're going to have to constantly put out, and that will affect Russian ability to sustain the war. Is it going to be deterministic? Not necessarily, but it's always worth noting that this is a significant factor beyond just the things that I like to talk about. Right, right. And this suggests that a long war doesn't necessarily favor Russia, but there are other factors that say a long war does, and that's the third and final thing I want to touch on. I'm looking at the clock very attentively. Um, there, And that is the complex politics of Western support for Ukraine on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, we're entering an election season in the U.S., um, these reports that the Ukrainian counteroffensive isn't going as well as expected is, is leading to a lot of finger pointing behind closed doors in Washington. I am certain. Do you see any storm clouds on the horizon here? I see some. I definitely think that there are going to be questions in Congress on uh, appropriation budget allocation for the war. That said, I still think that there'll be significant monies uh, that are... Uh, probably allocate the supporting Ukraine's efforts. I think that the Pentagon is pretty creative in uh, the math and accounting that they employ for the value of the goods they provide. Um, and they can probably make it work. I think that there are definitely strong clouds when you're talking about U.S. elections. Why? Because elections matter. And you know, right. the United States presidential elections matter very much. And uh, whatever the Russian strategy may be, and I think it's definitely to drag out this war, uh, at least for the next year or two, and perhaps next year to shift into much more of a deep strike strategy trying to destroy Ukraine's viability as a state for lack of, uh, of an actual capacity to take territory, right? Um, but, but either way, I'm sure Russian leadership is going to try to make this war difficult and costly to sustain to the West and drag it out until the U.S. election. Right. The hope that they might get lucky, depending on the outcome, right? Right. Um, Yeah, and there's no evidence, at least from my point of view, on the Russian side of a willingness to negotiate uh, or a a perception that they, they actually are not, they don't have the military capability to achieve their political aims. Right. In this, in this war. So likely they're going to drag it off. Um, does the war favor them long term? No, I don't think so. Not necessarily. But a lot of it depends on Western political will. Exactly. If you look at it, if you look just in base terms of economic potential, defense industrial output, military capacity, the West is heavily advantaged, right? But with this very large asterisk to that statement, 
that it all depends on Western political will and motivation. Right. And, and that the West is not a unitary actor, right? Like there's no telephone to, telephone to the West. So right. that's the other problem. Right, right. So yeah, I mean, we have a situation here where the, the economy in the long term doesn't favor Russia as long as the Western military support. And again, this is something we harp on again and again and again and again in this podcast for a very obvious reason. Um, if we stay the course, I think, despite how bad things are going right now or how less well than expected things are going right now, this looks, the, the Ukraine's prospects in the long term are good. You wanted to jump in here. Yeah, I just want to start, uh, jump in with one one sharp uh, point, which is that the challenge with where we are on the war, the, if this offensive is generally seen as unsuccessful, worse failed, then folks seem to ask themselves a fundamental question. Are they, are they in it to support Ukraine up until the first failed offensive? And does that actually make sense in a conventional war? Because no, it's a very honest question at this point. If that is the premise of Western support, then I have big questions about about the entire proposition, right? It doesn't make much sense. So if people rule this to be an unsuccessful offensive, and then after that, they sort of become uh, unmotivated, they lose the political will to support a Ukraine, uh, it's it's almost when you, when you put it plainly, a preposterous proposition that folks were basically just backing Ukraine until the first offensive that wasn't successful in the large-scale conventional war. Sorry, I'm just making this point, Brian, so you can see how ludicrous the proposition sounds. No, I I, I agree, and uh, I mean one of the things where yeah, we the, our, our point of view on this podcast is uh is fairly obvious to everybody, and I I mean I I I am a proponent of of the West staying the course and even increasing support to Ukraine, regardless of how this uh this counteroffensive goes. Uh, this is the message I want to I, I want to get out there, so I'm going to do it here as we wrap it up. On that note, we shall wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlene McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, this military has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, a newly minted senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a principal research scientist at CNA Corporation, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. You should also check out Michael's podcast on War on the Rocks called Russian Contingency. If you'd like to hear on this podcast, you should, you, should, you should hear more of it. Thank you for an enlightening discussion. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Lee is in the virtual control room. He keeps it all, the, all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell, handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Ripple Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Ripple blog, and access all Power Ripple products at powerripple.org. And you can follow us on the website, formerly known as the Twitter, at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Blue Sky and on Threads at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 